Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, guys, I really, I enjoy playing PC games a lot. But one thing I am not super crazy about is having to upgrade my system on the reg in order to keep up with the latest advancements in gaming. This is something that first started happening to me back in the 90s, and I hated it then, and I hate it now. I'm one of those folks who gets rubbed the wrong way when I have to turn down a graphics setting in a game just so that the game will run more smoothly. You know, in my head, I'm always thinking, this isn't how the game is supposed to be played. It's supposed to be played at the top of those settings. That's what they made it for. But my machine just can't do that. Keeping up with the latest in graphics hardware is really expensive. And sometimes it's just plain impossible because of all of the gosh dang Bitcoin miners who are scooping up all the ding dang darn GPUs. Pardon my language. Well, consoles are an alternative to to PCs. I mean, obviously, but they come with their own drawbacks. For one thing, tracking down a PS5 is a devilishly hard thing to do right now as I record this episode. For another, the latest generation of consoles don't really have a robust library to draw from yet. They're they're brand new. The pandemic really messed up video game development. Most games that are available right now are remasters or titles that span generations of consoles. So you could get the PS5 version of a game, but you're also thinking, yeah, but this is also available on the PS4. I could just play this game on a cheaper console. Plus, you still have to upgrade every so often, right? I mean, if you want to keep up, you've got to buy another console when a new one comes out. Though some companies like Sony have a reputation of supporting older systems far beyond the launch of the subsequent PlayStation console. Uh, The PS4 is not really one of those, actually, because in order to try and meet more demand for PS5s, Sony recently announced that it was discontinuing nearly all PS4 models in an effort to switch their manufacturing process over to making more PS5 consoles. But what if you didn't have to worry about any of that, right? What if you could just subscribe to a service where you never needed to worry about upgrading your system because the games you play wouldn't be running on your device. It would be running on someone else's computer. And it would be a screaming fast computer with the capability to push out 4K resolution video. And you could play these games pretty much on anything, on a computer or maybe on your TV or even on your phone. That is the sales pitch for Google Stadia, a game streaming service, something that Google first unveiled in March 2019 during the Game Developers Conference. Now, let's be clear. Google Stadia is by far not the only cloud gaming service out there that does this. I mean, you can do this with PlayStation Now, on Sony consoles, or on a PC. Microsoft has xCloud, which currently runs on Windows 10 and Android and will later run on iOS devices. And sometimes we call these types of models gaming on demand or sometimes cloud gaming. And Google Stadia or these other services, none of these are the first ones either. 
So today we're going to talk about the history of cloud gaming and Google Stadia in particular. Now, I, I can't do just a full episode just on Google Stadia. There's not enough to talk about, and that's a big part of the problem with Google Stadia. But I can explain the process of where this came from. Now, you could argue that we saw the groundwork laid for cloud-based gaming systems with games like the old MMORPGs of the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm talking your Ultima Onlines, your EverQuests, and later your World of Warcrafts. These required players to install software to their home systems that contained many of the assets needed for the game. And then you have online servers, often called shards in the early days, thanks to Ultima Online. And then you have those coordinating the actions of hundreds or potentially thousands of players so that you, at playing locally on your machine, see where everybody else happens to be uh, because of this relationship between your computer and the server. These games typically took forms where problems like latency and data transfer speeds wouldn't be a huge issue, and the local machines did a lot of the heavy lifting. So in this case, you're talking about a computer that's still running some hefty software on its own and then is working in tandem with a game server. But even the history of cloud gaming proper dates back quite a ways, and it also includes one of the greatest examples of vaporware. And according to at least some accounts, it was a total scam. So let's take a very quick detour to talk about the Phantom. Now, way back in 2003, a company called Infinium Labs announced that it was working on a revolutionary gaming console it called the Phantom, and that name would turn out to be prophetic and a gold mine for snarky headlines, including some that I wrote. It was going to be an on-demand video game service. It was essentially the basic concept for cloud-based video game streaming, stuff we actually have today. But back in 2003, this was an incredibly ambitious plan. Now, I say that not because the technology needed to run such stuff is particularly advanced. A decently configured PC could run games pretty well. You would need to build out the framework for the service. On the user side, you'd have to have some sort of portal through which the user could remotely log into that PC that's running the game. So you would need to build some sort of software to allow for that, but it's essentially a remote login. On a conceptual level, at least, it's not that complicated. But back in 2003, broadband was still just gradually rolling out to most of the people who would be viable customers for such a service. Heck, according to the site All Connect, back in 2004, some 30% of internet users we're still relying on dial-up modems. And since those top out at 56 kilobits per second, there's no way you'd have any sort of satisfying game experience on that kind of connection. Even if we were to assume that the actual phantom business model was that you were to download games, but you would only be able to play them for as long as you had the permission from Infinium Labs, that would take ages over a 56 kilobits per second data line. That being said, the way the Phantom was marketed, it sounded more like cloud gaming, less like you purchase a game and download it to your device. For modern cloud gaming services, 
you are generally looking at a recommended minimum bandwidth of around 10 to 15 megabits per second. And that's at the slowest level. But even at that slow, quote unquote, level, that's nearly 180 times faster than the top speed you would get with a dial-up modem. At that speed, you're probably looking at games running at just 720p resolution, which isn't even HD quality. So if you did want 4K gaming, you're going to need some fatter pipes, as they say, to deliver information faster. And by faster, I really mean amount of data per second. The transmission speed of the signal is something else entirely. But that does raise another question. See, besides the barrier of how much data you can pull down per second, you also have latency issues. Latency is the lag you experience between when you send a command and when you see that command carried out. So if you've ever been on a website and you clicked on a link and then you had to wait a bit before anything happened, that's latency. And there's a lot of stuff that can cause latency from the programming of a game to the distance that's between you and whatever machine that game is actually running on. Heck, if you were playing on a local machine, so it's a computer that's like right in front of you, and it's in your home, and you have a wired controller connected to your computer, but for some reason, that controller has an absurdly long cord. Like in this case, something that's many, many, many miles long. And I get it. This is an absurd, unrealistic example, but I'm making a point here. Because that cable would be many miles long, you would experience latency as you push buttons and move the thumbsticks around because it does take time for the signal to pass through from the controller to your console. Now, we got to keep in mind that the fastest speed anything can travel in our universe is the speed of light. However, signals moving through cable move a little slower than that. If we're talking about coaxial cable, the electrical signal travels at about two-thirds the speed of light, so the speed of transmission depends upon the medium through which the signal is traveling. Anyway, my point is that the further the signal needs to travel from the host computer that's running the game to whatever device you're using to play the game, the more latency you're going to encounter because physics. One way to cope with this is to have a lot of memory in the user's device and load as much of the game as possible onto the local machine, you know, the one connected to your television, for example, and it would be pulling data locally as much as it possibly could in order to cut down on things like latency as well as delivering higher resolution experience for you. But this would mean you would need to wait while your device pulled down data from the host. It would be buffering, essentially. This has its own set of problems. It's not a very practical solution. Games frequently are not optimized for this sort of play. Most developers create games with the assumption that those games are just going to be played on a local device. So creating a game that can manage data this way requires a more specialized approach. And in fact, most of the time you're looking at a specific certification process for games to run on cloud gaming services in order to deliver the experience that the game developers intend the user to have. Then there's the way that information travels across the internet. Uh, we're not going to go all the way into packet switching and everything. That would take forever. But just imagine an actual net, a crisscross of all these different lines. So this is the kind of net that you would catch fish in. 
That mesh is made up of these little lines that link with one another. So imagine that each of those links, each of those points where the, the mesh is meeting, that represents a server or a router or a computer that's connected to the internet. And you pick two links that are a good distance from each other. Uh, on the internet, information can travel pretty much any available route between those two points. And it travels in packets, so not all the packets follow the same pathway. This is part of what makes the internet so robust, because there are multiple pathways from the source to the destination. So information can get to where it's going, even if some servers or routers go offline in between the source and the destination. In other words, if I were sending you a file from my computer to your computer, the file would get divided up into packets of data, and those packets would travel across the internet, going through various pathways, and then arrive at your computer, get reassembled like a puzzle, and then you would get the file. That's the way the internet works, but it does create some challenges when you're developing streaming services. Now, clearly, it is possible to build out low-latency, high-bandwidth connections, but back in the early 2000s when Infinium Labs launched, these were in really concentrated regions and major metropolitan areas, and they were largely restricted to enterprise-level transactions, which means this infrastructure wasn't really robust yet, and most end-users wouldn't have access to the speeds needed to deliver a good experience. So all of this is to say that the technical requirements needed to make the Phantom viable were not really what we had available to us back in the early 2000s at least not from an internet infrastructure perspective. If you did have broadband, and if Infinium Labs had built out lots of servers near your neck of the woods so that you're not dialing halfway across the globe to play a game, then arguably it was possible, but not necessarily practical, and not at very high resolutions or frame rates. And just to answer that question, frame rate refers to the number of frames or images that appear in a second on your display. Uh, a higher frame rate generally means smoother animation, which is pretty easy to grasp. So imagine it's your job to draw a series of images that show a stick figure running, and you're going to flip through these images in a second. If you only have three sheets of paper, then you're only allowed to draw one image per sheet, you're really limited on the number of poses that you can draw. You can only draw three poses, so you're not going to have very smooth running animation. If you have 30 sheets of paper, you can create a lot more poses, and you have allow for smoother animation when those 30 sheets are, are flipped within one second. If you had 60 sheets of paper, you could create even more subtle transitions, and the animation would look even more smooth. And you start hitting diminishing returns after a while, particularly if you're consistently animating the sheets by flipping them at that same speed, uh, or as in like all the sheets within a second. But generally speaking, the benchmark in gaming tends to be around 60 frames per second, with 30 frames being considered acceptable, and anything less than that is a problem. Anyway, that wasn't the end of the questions about the Phantom. People also wondered how this little startup would form the business relationships necessary to secure rights with all those video game companies in order to sell titles to customers. Back in the physical media days, it was easy to think, hey, I bought a copy of this game. This copy of the game is mine. After all, 
we had the physical copy. But as streaming services began to appear, that thinking transitioned into, I have purchased a license to access this content. The same would be true for games. But established video game companies weren't likely to just allow a startup to purchase copies of games and then rent out time on fast machines so that other people could play those games without having to buy their own copy. There was going to be some sort of licensing fee and agreement that would need to be in place for that to happen, and that's where things start to get really complicated. There was no guarantee that any two video game publishers would even behave in the same way. So you might have to have unique agreements for every single publisher. And then you'd have to figure out how those economics work, and that in itself is a huge challenge. It's not an insurmountable one, mind you, but definitely a tough one to solve. So this announced console, which Infinium Labs named the Phantom, and there were no end of articles online that pointed out how apt that name would turn out to be, It never materialized beyond some questionable prototypes that may or may not have had working components in them. And it's no big surprise, as the idea, while intriguing, was way ahead of its time. The Phantom became the subject of a lot of skepticism and investigation. If you do a search for stories about the Phantom and Infinium Labs, you're likely to find posts about how the address listed for the company led to what appeared to be unoccupied office space, Uh, There are accusations that the founder and various executives at the company were running a scam and that the prototype devices the company showed off were dummy devices or other computers disguised as a phantom console. I don't know if the whole thing actually was a scam from the start or if this was one of those situations where everyone started off with a sincere goal to really achieve this and it just proved to be unattainable. So the phantom kind of falls in the same similar category as Theranos. Perhaps the worst part of what went on with the Phantom is that it led people to doubt the viability of a similar service later down the road, which would make it harder for companies to establish a user base and revenue model. Even as we saw high-speed, low-latency solutions rolling out to larger populations, the story of the Phantom haunted those who hoped to provide online gaming services. When we come back, I'll talk about another attempt to make an online gaming company that fell through, and we'll look at what Google hopes to do differently. But first, let's take a quick break. A few years after the Phantom debacle, there was a service called OnLive Gaming. OnLive, as I'm sure you all know, is a portmanteau of online and live, something I only just realized as I started taking notes this time. Not that I had never heard of it before. I had heard of it. I just didn't put it together because I'm dense and slow. Uh, But OnLive, despite existing and technically working, would have its own share of controversy over the years. Now, the company was founded in 2009, and it aimed to create a cloud gaming service in which people would rent access to game titles without having to download and install them. So, while the Phantom may or may not have been intended to do this, OnLive definitely was. You played the games through a portal service on computers and mobile devices, or through a dedicated console system called the OnLive Game System. Unlike the Phantom, this was something that actually existed as a consumer product. And with broadband adoption being much further along in the old days of 2004, it actually had perhaps a fighting chance. 
The founder of OnLive was Steve Perlman, who had been responsible for some pretty big products in the past, like Web TV and QuickTime. He introduced the service in 2009 at the Game Developers Conference. He explained that his system would allow gamers to play brand new titles at top settings without needing all the local hardware. One of the big elements that made it possible was a video compression strategy. On the server side, algorithms would compress outgoing video streams to players. Software, either on the player's computer or mobile device or on an on-live console, would decompress the video on the other end. There were some latency issues, but the thing that really killed on-live was that players just never really joined up. According to The Verge, at its peak, OnLive only saw 1,600 concurrent players, which meant all the money the company had spent on server farms was wasted as most of its servers were dormant most of the time. The company was reportedly burning through $5 million every month toward the end. The company's business model allowed users to demo games for free, so you could play like a demo level of a game, or you could purchase the rights to play a specific title, but very few people were doing more than just testing out games. And OnLive couldn't reach deals with several of the top-tier video game publishers, so its library was limited. On top of all that, game companies demanded that OnLive offer their titles at the same price you would find on other stores, including those that allow you to actually download a copy of the game to your own machine. And the quality of the experience largely depended upon the broadband connection of the user. So in other words, if you're a gamer and you're told, well, you can buy a copy of this brand new game, it's going to cost you $60 if you want to download it to your computer, where it will run on your hardware at the top level of your hardware's capabilities, or you could spend that same $60 to run on this streaming service and potentially have a less satisfying experience. Well, that's not much of a sales pitch. Meanwhile, a competing service called Gaikai, G-A-I-K-A-I, was meeting with more success in large part because Gaikai only offered limited playable demos of games. It didn't represent a threat to the video game companies or retail businesses because they didn't sell games. And moreover, the founder of Gaikai was David Perry, who had a history in the video game industry, while Perlman didn't. And Perlman over at OnLive really didn't like that Gaikai was making headway, and eventually he started to demand that OnLive not support games that had found their way onto Gaikai, which further limited OnLive's library. Ultimately, OnLive just couldn't make the business work. The company burned through its investment money, and in 2012, Perlman gathered staff together, said the company was folding, laid off everyone without severance, and then formed a new company that bought the assets of the old company and hired on a skeleton crew to run things, which... that burned some bridges. Sony would ultimately come along and scoop up OnLive's assets, shutting it down in 2015. Oh, Sony, by the way, also acquired Gaikai three years before that. Today, besides the Xbox and PlayStation streaming video game services that I've already mentioned, there are a few more out there, like Steam Link, NVIDIA GameStream, and about a dozen other ones. So there's a big push still for making streaming video games a thing. And these are not all you know, apples to apples. They have different features and different limitations. However, most of these services, not all, but most of them, are connected to established gaming platforms. 
Steam is Valve's online store and is a major part of the computer game market. Xbox and PlayStation are obviously well-established consoles, and cloud gaming is an enhancing feature for those systems, but it's not the defining feature, at least not yet. So while there are a lot of cloud gaming services out there, many of them are extensions of already established brands in the gaming world. But let's get into Google's product, Stadia. Around 2014, Google team members began to explore the potential of developing their own cloud gaming and streaming service. Now, the company had already launched a streaming product called Chromecast in 2013. Chromecast is a device that connects to televisions via an HDMI plug, and the device also connects to your Wi-Fi network. You can cast content from other connected devices, like computers or smartphones, and send it to the Chromecast to view on your television. So you could cast movies or a web page if you wanted to, to your computer and view it that way. The team working on cloud gaming over at Google Fiber would join up with the Chromecast team to work on the project, which got the name Project Stream. The team sought out how to optimize data traffic to allow for high-bandwidth, low-latency video game streaming, and the whole project was kept under wraps for four years. In October 2018, Google showed off a beta build of Project Stream. Beta testers had a chance to try out the service on devices like a Chromebook, playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey from Ubisoft, and that's pretty impressive in that it shows off the advantages of this model of gaming. Stéphane Etienne of The Verge reported that he tried it out on a Chromebook Pixel, which is particularly impressive as Google had stopped supporting the Pixel line of Chromebooks a couple of months earlier in August of 2018. Now, it's possible that Etienne really meant that he played it on a Pixel Book. That was the line of laptops that had been introduced in 2017, the successor to the Chromebook Pixel line. But either way, it's a really neat achievement. Now, to understand why I call it impressive, it helps to take a look at the specs of a Pixelbook. And I'm going to use Pixelbooks just in case that's what Etienne meant, rather than a Chromebook Pixel. Just know that the Chromebook Pixel is even less powerful than the Pixelbook was. So Pixelbooks can have either a 7th generation Intel i5 or i7 processor, which Google says allows for, quote, seamless 4K output to an external monitor, end quote. So you can connect this laptop to an external display and stream out 4K video. You can get them with either 8GB or 16GB of RAM. They come with a solid-state storage drive with a capacity of either 128GB, 256GB, or 512GB, and it has the Chrome operating system as its OS. That's about it for the technical specs, apart from the fact that it has two USB-C ports, which that's important if you're going to connect it to a, a display. Now, those are some pretty modest stats for a PC, and definitely humble when you compare it to a truly fast gaming rig. There's no fancy cooling system in the Pixelbook, there's no souped-up graphics processing units, or any other bells and whistles that you'll find on a state-of-the-art gaming PC. The Pixelbook price is in a range from about $1,000 up to $1,700 for the top-of-the-line model, and that still is pretty darn pricey, but there are less expensive Chromebook models, and of course the most recent iteration of this line is called the Pixelbook Go, and it has a, a less uh, grandiose scale of prices. 
But let's compare that to one of the most expensive off-the-shelf gaming PCs of 2018 to see how it stacks up. You know, compare this against a state-of-the-art gaming rig. So Stefan Etienne, that same guy who, who reviewed his experience on the Project Stream beta, also had a chance to try out uh, a, a true monster of a gaming rig earlier in 2018. This was not connected to the Pixelbook stuff at all. The device he used was called the Main Gear F131. And you can configure the F131 in numerous ways, which would affect the price, right? Like you can say, all right, I, I want this, but I don't need that, and that'll change the price. However, the version that Etienne tested tipped the scales at $8,000, a princely sum indeed. The F131 Etienne tested had a core i7 processor as its CPU with a clock speed of 4.7 gigahertz, but overclocked to 5 gigahertz and it had two GTX 1080 Ti GPUs. It had a custom liquid cooling system to keep everything nice and chilly, because electronics and heat don't mix very well, and those kind of processors generate a lot of heat. It had 32 gigabytes of RAM, a 512 gigabyte solid state drive, a 4 terabyte standard hard drive, a 1200 watt power supply, and a Blu-ray drive. And there were other cosmetic enhancements to the PC, including remote-controlled LED lighting in the case. So this was a machine designed to run the latest games in 2018 at their top settings with no hiccups, and Etienne proclaimed it was, quote, practically future-proof for at least the next one to two years, end quote. Which tells you how quickly the hardware cycle really is. This is Moore's Law in Action that we're talking about, so let that sink in. Eight thousand dollars for a computer that could potentially need to be upgraded in if you're lucky two years time to keep up to speed with the latest standards and games that now you're starting to see where the value proposition is in the cloud gaming model right but this really nails down how that video game streaming model can be really attractive the most valuable component on a top-of-the-line pixel book is the capacity to connect to a 4k display for ultra high definition video the processor, while it's good, is not the best. There's no specialized graphics card in there, so with relatively simple components, you can still play the latest games with incredible graphics. You don't have to worry about GPU shortages or anything like that because Google is worrying about that for you on their end. And you wouldn't have to upgrade your machine, like, ever, unless it broke down, and that's because the actual games are running on the cloud, not on your computer. It also would mean that Google might potentially allow players to stream top-tier games to mobile devices, as long as those devices also have a good internet connection. And the initial impressions among beta testers in cities with good broadband infrastructure was really positive. In 2019, during the game developer conference of that year, Google revealed that Project Stream was now becoming an actual product called Google Stadia. At the time, a lot of people expected Google to unveil a full console, albeit one that facilitated streaming games. So they were thinking, oh, you're going to have a set-top box that you plug in to a router, and then you plug the other end into the television, and you're good to go. But instead, they found out that Stadia is really more of a service, and it's less about specific consoles and more about a family of technologies that have a lot of potential points of contact with the end user. Google did unveil one piece of proprietary hardware, however. It's a game controller that looks 
pretty similar to an Xbox controller, complete with two thumbsticks, shoulder buttons, triggers, and a four-button layout on the right side, and it also has a few system-specific buttons for navigating menus and activating various features. But what would this controller actually connect to? Well, it could wirelessly connect with a Chromecast Ultra, so if you happen to have one of those connected to your television and your Wi-Fi network, you could wirelessly connect your controller to that device and the network, and you could then navigate the service and play games on your television. If you were using a phone, at launch you needed a way to plug the controller into the phone using a USB-C cable. Then you could buy a little clip-on frame-like device that would hold the phone in landscape orientation just above the controller, turning this into kind of an interesting little jerry-rigged handheld gaming system. Or you could connect to a PC running the Chrome browser, so you just initiate Stadia through the Chrome browser, and you could use any wired gamepad or a mouse and keyboard uh, it was whatever your choice was, and all three of these methods would give users access to the Stadia service, and moreover, at least Google's pronouncement was, you would be able to swap between them and pick up where you left off previously, more or less. It wasn't, it wasn't a completely seamless experience, especially early on. So, how was this announcement received? Well, we'll find out after this quick break. On launch day, there was still a great deal of skepticism regarding Google Stadia for multiple reasons, and allow me to list a few of them. At launch, Stadia cost $130 for the controller and access to the service, which after three months would include a $10 per month subscription fee, on top of which you would need to pay more money to purchase a premium game on the service and add it to your library. Now initially, even with all those fees, that's still cheaper than a console, and much cheaper than a high-end gaming rig, but over time, those expenses start to add up. That being said, at launch Google announced that the plan was to move to a free service, dropping the subscription fee. Still, if you wanted to be an early adopter, it meant you were paying three separate fees. The initial purchase price, the subscription, and then the cost of any games you actually wanted to buy. Another big reason for skepticism was that Google has a pretty shaky reputation when it comes to services. The company does have quite a few solid products, of course. Google Chrome commands more than 60% of the browser market share, according to StatCounter, and Safari takes a distant second place at around 20%. Tools like Gmail and Google Drive Suites have stuck around. Google Maps is very popular, but then there are the numerous Google products that debuted and then went away, sometimes with very little hullabaloo, and sometimes the hola was all over that baloo. There's an entire website called Killed by Google dedicated to documenting these things. I'll give just a few examples. Google Hangouts is on the way out. It's still around right now, but it'll be discontinued this year. Google Play Music was recently unplugged. Google Fiber TV has gone off the air. The YouTube gaming app has a game over sign on it, which seems like a bad omen considering this topic. Google Goggles went dark. Google Wave waved bye-bye. Google Buzz buzzed off. Google Plus is now a minus. Google Now is later. 
And then we've got Picasa and Orcutt, who I can't really do puns about. But the list goes on and on. Now, the point is that Google has a long history of coming up with interesting ideas, launching a product that may or may not be half-baked, and then pulling support for that product at some later point. Some of the projects make a real go at it. They might stick around for a few or even several years. Some don't last very long at all. In many of the cases I've personally seen, I've noted that it felt often like the product was made almost exclusively by and for engineers. Now, I don't mean that as a knock on engineers, but what I do mean is that a lot of these products place a good deal of responsibility on the user to figure out how to get the most out of the product. They are not dumbed down or idiot-proof, and that can be a bad thing. If you happen to think the way the engineers who made the product thought, well, it may just work for you, because your thinking is in line with what they intended. But if you don't, you might find yourself really frustrated with the experience, and you'll give up on it, because you're not using it the way they thought you would. That's not necessarily your fault. And eventually, Google might give up on it too. Again, that's not me saying that these products were bad. Some of the ones I've mentioned were products I loved and depended upon. I still miss Google Wave to this day, but I admit it was a tool that had a limited number of use cases. Now, losing Google Wave was a bummer, but that didn't cost me any money. Google Stadia is a different matter. So what happens if you join Google Stadia and you purchase games in Google Stadia and then the company later decides that it's going to stop offering the service? The games you purchase don't live on any of your devices. They're in the cloud. Your purchase price is more about getting access to the experience of playing that. But if Google shuts down Stadia, then presumably you won't be able to access those games anymore. To compare this to traditional games, it would be like someone from EA comes to your home and demands you hand over all the copies of EA games you happen to have because EA is going to go out of business. That, to gamers, doesn't make a lot of sense. They think, I bought the game, I should still be able to play it even if you decide to shut down the service, but that's not how that would work. Another reason some analysts were eyeing the launch with pessimism is that as we've covered in this episode, the history of standalone cloud gaming services is not filled with success. The sales pitch for cloud gaming can hit a pretty narrow band of people. Serious gamers are likely already invested in gaming rigs and consoles, so they don't have a big need for another service that delivers games online, particularly if it's an experience that doesn't quite measure up to the one they're used to. Moreover, if you're a serious gamer, you've likely spent the money on hardware to get the best experience you can, and chances are the experience you get over broadband just isn't going to measure up. Stadia also didn't have any exclusive games, really, so that meant that all the titles you could find on Google Stadia were also available on other services. And if you're able to buy the game and run it on a native device without worrying about latency or anything like that, it just seems like that would be the natural route you would choose. Then there are things well beyond Google's control that were a factor. A big one of those are data caps. That's the limit that ISPs often put on user accounts per month. For example, Comcast has a 1.2 terabyte data cap per month for most accounts. If you want the ability to use more data than that, you have to pay for it either by getting a limitless account or by paying overage fees when you go over the limit. 
If you listened to the news episode I did last week, you know that Massachusetts is currently pushing back on Comcast for doing that to customers in the state. It's something that the company has been doing for a while in other states, and it's not the only one. Now, as you might imagine, streaming 4K video can eat up a lot of data, even though most of the time we're actually talking about 1080 resolution video that then gets upscaled once it hits its destination. If you are an avid gamer, you could chew through that data limit pretty quickly with some long gaming sessions. And so some critics pointed out that in a world with data caps, this business might not really have a place. And then there were the problems of some unfulfilled promises at launch. So when Google announced Stadia in March of 2019, the company made some pretty big claims. One was that you would be able to stream to YouTube in 4K resolution right off the bat. And another was that you would use a button on the controller to activate Google Assistant when you could get real-time and relevant tips as you play through. So imagine you're playing a game, and maybe it's a puzzle game, and you hit a particularly tough puzzle, and you're just having real trouble getting through it. You could hit the Google Assist button, according to Google, and get tips on what you would need to do in order to make it through that part of the game. You just ask your assistant for help. You could, the company claimed, watch your favorite YouTube gamers and, with a push of a button, leap right into the same part of the same game that the YouTuber was going through. So you could measure your own skill against the YouTuber. The system would offer a cross-platform for play for titles as well, according to Google. And there was more. There was a comment that you could watch a video on YouTube, and let's say you get an ad for a video game. With the push of a button, you could add that game to your library and purchase it right through Google Stadia. But a lot of these promises just weren't in place when the product finally launched later that year. For example, the flagship game on the Google Stadia system was Destiny 2, a popular multiplayer shooter game. But Bungie, the studio behind Destiny 2, revealed in June 2019 that the Stadia version would not be cross-platform, but rather a walled-off ecosystem of its own. So if you were playing on Stadia, you wouldn't be able to play with your buddies who happen to be playing them on PC, for example. As the project got closer to launch, other promises had to be tweaked. The Google Assistant feature was scaled way back. You wouldn't be able to stream to Chrome PCs in 4K with HDR at launch either. Uh, none of the games would have those YouTube features I mentioned at launch. And there were some other setbacks as well. These things do happen. Again, Google wasn't launching a standalone console, but rather a service that connects to various pieces of hardware. And that is a lot of figuratively moving pieces, and not all of them were in place by the time of launch. That being said, the Google Stadia team was hard at work on Stadia features. Google also established a new division called Stadia Games and Entertainment, and they hired Jade Raymond, a former Ubisoft employee, to head up that division. Part of what this division will do will be to develop exclusive titles for the Stadia platform. Today, you can make a Stadia account for free, but to get access to features like 4K resolution on TVs connected to Chromecast Ultra, or 60 frames per second at 1080 resolution, or a selection of free games, you have to subscribe to the Google Stadia Pro service. And the premium subscription service is, as of this recording, $10 per month. Uh, the controller now will set you back $69, and beyond the free titles that Google offers, you can purchase other games and add them to your cloud library. 
You can stream to YouTube, though some of the other YouTube-related features still aren't active as of this recording. Google launched an iOS-compatible version of Stadia in December 2020, and the team continues to update users on what's new with the platform on the Google Stadia blog. I've tried this out myself a little bit with a Google Stadia Premiere Edition, and full disclosure to you guys, this was something Google offered to me for some reason. Not as a part of tech stuff, mind you. They didn't reach out to me as a host of a podcast, but I got the offer as a Google customer. It might be because I'm a Google Fi customer. I'm also a Google Pixel user. I I don't know. But I figure I should mention that I got the controller for free, and I got a couple of free months on the premium service to try it out. And it's not a bad experience, but it doesn't really replace having a gaming PC or a current generation console, at least I didn't feel it did. I find that depending on what platform I'm playing, controls can feel a little floaty at times. However, that could also just be the games I've tried out because I've been playing games that I don't own on other platforms, so it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. And I haven't spent as much time on Google Stadia as I would like because um, I've been real busy, y'all. The platform does have some neat benefits. Stadia can frequently support larger multiplayer games than other platforms, so you can have much larger contests with certain titles. You know, if you have like, uh, you know, army type battles, you can have a lot more players involved at once, which is kind of cool. There's a picture in picture feature that you can apparently use with friends, which would give you a view of your friend's point of view in in a smaller picture in the corner of your screen. So imagine that you're both playing like Rainbow Six Siege or something. Not that this game necessarily is on Stadia or is supported by this, but this is the example. You might have a buddy that you're playing with and you would be able to see your buddy's point of view in your lower the lower corner of your screen, uh, you know, so that way you could coordinate with them and better go through a level, for example. Now, I have not seen this. I haven't tried it out because I don't have any friends who are on Stadia. I do have friends I promise. They uh they just live in Canada. Yeah, that's it. All that being said, I see potential with Google Stadia. I think it's going to have a hard time to attract customers just like on Live did because the platform is not well established in the minds of gamers already. It's going toe to toe with some really heavy hitters, but Google itself is no slouch. I'm not sure if it's really going to be here to stay, which makes me reluctant to suggest it to other people that they dive in. But if you do have a good internet connection, and maybe you've got a 4K TV, and you want a chance to play some, but not all, <laughs> of, of the top games out there without you know having to build your own gaming rig, it might be worth a try. I realize that's not the most spectacular of endorsements, but it's my honest opinion. My hope is that Google will build out the service further and make it more attractive to users, But then I think back to Google Wave, and I sigh. Well, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff about Google Stadia. If you guys have any suggestions for things I should cover on future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 